Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54. Let me start with an update on how things are going with my book, Outside the Wire, 10 Lessons I've Learned in Everyday Courage, which comes out August 7th. The book tour dates and the media appearances are coming together, and things are getting pretty exciting. I've written out hundreds of customized inscriptions that people requested already. Uh, At this pace, who knows, I may end up doing over a thousand of these things. So I got to draw a line which makes this the last week when you can customize the inscription that you want in your copy of the book. And look, cool pre-sale rewards aside, I'm just really proud of this book. I poured my heart into it. I really think you'll like it and that you'll find it entertaining and inspiring. It's everything that I've learned in the military and in public service about trying to make the world a better place without losing who you are. It's nothing like your average politician book. It's like a handbook for anyone who wants to read about my humiliating or embarrassing moments so you can avoid repeating them. Plus, there's a lot in there about how cool my wife is, and those are some of my favorite stories in the book. And so I'm just going to plain out ask you here, if you haven't already pre-ordered it, go ahead and do it now. Here's why. When stores are deciding how many copies of Outside the Wire to have in stock, they do that at least partially based on the number of pre-sales that the book got. And I want a lot of people to read this book. Because I really believe there's a lot in here that people need to hear. And if, if I've ever said anything that you like, anything that picked you up and helped you keep going, there's a lot more of that kind of stuff, along with some stuff that'll make you laugh in the book. So I hope you'll show your support right now by going to jasonkanderbook.com and pre-ordering. All right, end of update. Let's focus on today's guest. Some of our episodes are about taking on partisan subjects. But today, we're talking about a threat to democracy as a whole and how we can all take action just by starting to pay attention to how it creeps into our home states and our hometowns. No, it's not Russian social media bots. It's a series of violations that are much more homegrown. Every 10 years after the census, legislative and congressional maps are redrawn in every state. Theoretically, this is about making sure that changes in population are accurately reflected. But over the years, the process has become a huge political game. Unfortunately, you often know this as gerrymandering. Politicians have mostly co-opted the process, and too often they've conspired to draw districts that help them get re-elected. This is really good for incumbents and bad for challengers, and more often than not, the biggest benefits go to the party that's currently in power. It's why there is such a huge push to win state legislative races in 2018 and 2020, because both parties are trying to be in the majority at the moment right after the census. And if you're thinking that that is a pretty stupid way to run a democracy, well, you're right. A lot of us think it's really dumb. But for a long time, most people weren't aware of the issue, and that made most other people who were feel like it was impossible to do anything about it. But Katie Fahey refused to believe people couldn't get excited to fix a problem like gerrymandering. And so with a single Facebook post, she wound up launching one of the most inspiring citizen-led initiatives I have ever seen. Here is my conversation with Katie Fahey about her effort to peacefully overthrow the government of Michigan. I have a background in sustainable business, which is like environmental, social-oriented business practices, and community leadership, which is kind of like a public administration degree. And um, I accidentally started a political movement back after the 2016 election. When you say you have a background in sustainability and in community leadership, what you didn't say is you've worked on campaigns. Like, you're not a political operative, right, Katie? (laughs) 
No, I've uh, never worked on campaigns. Um, Voted for sure, but never saw myself really operating in the political space. And your job, I mean, to really put it simply, prior to what you do right now, you've worked in recycling for a long time, right? Yeah, recycling and waste management. So hopping into dumpsters and recycling uh, containers and helping communities figure out how to set up programs or working with business to um, figure out how they could do things differently to to improve their profit and be good for the environment. And then you accidentally started this political movement. You say accidentally, <laughs> but you, you, you started it on purpose. You just didn't know you were starting a movement. Right. Yes. I didn't. I didn't. I certainly didn't realize that I would end up uh, leading it, but it's been the best thing I've ever done in my life. So it all started with a Facebook post, right? Yeah. So shortly after, you know, during the 2016 election, um, I've always been somebody who's followed politics, um, not really gotten involved on the campaign end, but like being informed and talking about how do we make the world better and what makes this policy better versus this one. But a lot of my friends and family, uh, I'd have to kind of beg them to want to engage and talk about that. And the really cool thing I saw happening in 2016 is a lot of those friends and family members for the first time were talking about politics. They were, you know, talking about the 2016 election. And when I was trying to listen and figure out why, I really found out that it was because of two characters. I think it was because of Donald Trump and because of Bernie Sanders. I think there were two pretty extreme overthrow the system people. And that was resonating with a lot of people in Michigan. Um, And so after the 2016 election, I was hoping they would stay engaged, um, but maybe in a different way or or maybe we could keep talking and, and moving forward. But it seemed like people are just getting really divisive. And I was thinking about going to Thanksgiving dinner and my family and I uh, vote in different ways. And I was really nervous to go to Thanksgiving because it just seemed like things had gotten really, really extreme. But when I thought back to, you know, but they're finally engaged and, and I want to keep that going. Is there something out there that I think would resonate with them and me that we could work on together that would not be about a politician, but be about like these systemic changes that I keep hearing all of us want to have happen. Just maybe we think about having them happen in different ways. So to me, I, I'm not exactly sure why, but you know, I, I really brought it back to redistricting um, and the fact that we suffer a very gerrymandered state and so I made a Facebook post that said, hey, I want to uh, end gerrymandering in Michigan. If you want to help, let me know. Smiley face. And and that's what started it all. How, how many Facebook friends did you have at that time? <laughs> um, I think like maybe like around 2000, not a ton for somebody my age, I don't think. But So I think you told me that you had actually said something really similar on Facebook prior to that, like a couple years before or something. Yeah. So Time Hop came up on Facebook and I saw that almost three years ago I had posted with an article on just our our redistricting process in Michigan, something almost exactly similar. Like, hey, I want to end gerrymandering in Michigan. If you want to help, let me know. But nobody even liked it, uh, which I think really speaks to the times and that people were engaged in wanting to do something or work on like a systemic issue. And how many days after the 2016 election did you did you do it the second time? The post. Um, I think it was November 10th. Okay. So two days after the, <laughs> after the election, you say, I want to end gerrymandering in Michigan. Let me know if you want to help smiley face. And then what happens? Yeah. The emoji is a very uh, important part of that Facebook post. Absolutely. Can't, can't tell the story without the emoji. Yeah. No, no. Maybe um, the emoji was what made the difference. Maybe the first time you just, man, should have had that emoji. Everything be different in Michigan right now. I think that's really true because it, it definitely was without the emoji the first time. <laughs> anyway, so, <laughs> so okay, so uh, you, you post it two days after the election, then what? Yeah, so, you know, um, my whole motivation was really around, like, my friends and family and hoping that they'd want to hop on. Um, and what's kind of funny is that it was the complete opposite case. Um, the Facebook message or post started getting shared in a bunch of different Facebook groups and um, just from different people who I was like kind of friends with on Facebook. Uh, but a lot of people started being interested and I got really excited. I was like, man, you know, I always care about this stuff and maybe it's not the people I thought that would be engaging, but it seems like some people do. 
So we made a Facebook group after that and just invited people. And we set up three really basic rules. Um, One was that, you know, however we were going to take on gerrymandering, we were going to fight for a solution that was fair for anybody, no matter what political party. Um, Because I think that was something that was really lacking in the extreme partisanship part of the election was the hard part. Wanting to actually focus, though, on how do we make this whole thing better and have a space where we can all like come together instead of keep dividing apart was really important. The second one was that you couldn't be paid to be there. Um, And what that basically meant was like, you know, lobbyists and politicians have a very large influence in our political process already. So we just wanted like one Facebook group where you had to be there representing yourself, not another agenda. And then the third one was that we would adhere to just basic respect. Um, You know, people are allowed to think differently and people are allowed to have a space where we can talk about these ideas. Uh, And and again, try and focus on being solution oriented, but also being open to what are all the possibilities of how we could take on gerrymandering and what that solution can look like. So you called it Voters Not Politicians, right? That was the original name for the Facebook group? Actually, the the original name for the Facebook group was super snappy. Um, It was Mm -hmm. Michiganders for Nonpartisan Redistricting Reform. Equally equally catchy. Yes, just just as good. All right. So the the Facebook group starts, people uh, start getting excited about it, right? Yeah, we started having, you know, at the time, you know, it was up to 70 people and that felt like a lot where now we have over, you know, 12,000 people who've signed up. But um, it just felt really exciting. Um, And we had a lot of people wanting to go a lot of different directions. And that's really where I realized, like, okay, we got to get organized and just try to think about, okay, you know, could we bring a lawsuit? Could we try and work with our legislators or could we do a ballot initiative? So we... um, And we had a lot of people, too, who were like, I've never been involved in politics before. I'm not sure if I should be here, but I know that I want to help change things. Let's real quick, let's walk through because we should make sure to do this. For folks listening, talk to me about how redistricting works under the current law in Michigan. People listening are probably familiar with the concept of gerrymandering, but they probably don't know just how egregious the process in Michigan is. Yeah. So once every 10 years after the census, um, our legislators uh, have different committees in our state house and our state senate, and they draw district maps. But those committees are comprised of whoever the majority party happens to be. Um, and this last round, one person from the minority party. And really what happens is maps are created behind closed doors um, without any kind of public input or when there is a public opportunity for input, it's very superficial. Uh, This last round, you had a set of maps that was introduced for the public comment. And then before a vote went out, a brand new set of maps was put out. And by maps, though, like, you know, we we all think about the maps, but it was actually just a list of census tracts that would be included in each district. So you don't have any kind of visual. And unless you somehow have all the census maps memorized, um, you don't know what that really means. And and it's a lot of like trading back and forth. You know, oh, I'll keep you in office if, you know, you'll vote yes for this set of maps or, um, oh, we don't like this person in the party. So we're going to make sure that we gerrymander them or redistrict them out of their district and put who we want to win in the primary in it. So really, it's whoever happens to have won the election right before those maps are drawn are probably going to just control the entire process. And and so here here's my argument as to why Michigan is sort of a corrupt double down on what you usually think of as gerrymandering. So when people think about gerrymandering, they think about a state legislature that's controlled by one party or the other drawing congressional district maps. And and folks think, well, that's pretty unfair because it's politicians drawing the districts for their fellow politicians or maybe drawing the districts that they want to run in one day when they run for Congress. But in Michigan, correct me if I'm wrong, it's more than that because it's not just that the state legislators are drawing the congressional maps, but essentially the state legislators are also drawing their own maps that they run in, right? Yes. So it's uh, the state congressional maps, the state House maps and the state Senate maps are all drawn by the people who are running in those elections. So it's like they have control over the like politicians have control over that entire process and they set the rules of the game, which makes it virtually impossible for them to lose that game. 
Yes, especially the people who are already elected, the incumbents that are there. I mean, they are literally choosing which voters they want and which voters they do not want. And and it, it's an important point that you just made because you said the incumbents. You didn't just say like the majority party. And, and a minute ago, you alluded to the fact that there's a bunch of horse trading that goes on. That's one of the things that's different about gerrymandering as opposed to, say, uh, you know, other forms of voter suppression is that this tends to be an incumbent thing where they're it's, – it's actually – Sadly, this is one of the few things that's bipartisan, right? Because the incumbents <laughs> make deals with each other across party lines to keep each other in office. Right. Yes. So if you and I were running against each other, but I was in office um, and I was worried about you maybe beating me in the primaries, which is when you have gerrymandering, the only race that really counts, um, and I knew where you lived, I could just carve your house out of your neighborhood about three months before that election, um, and virtually have no competition because I'm the person who's in office and and you aren't. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's truly crazy. So so you got together with a bunch of friends and a Facebook group and everything and said, OK, let's peacefully overthrow the government in Michigan. How's it going? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's going really well. So, yeah. So from when we thought about, you know, when all of us, we were voicing, what's our frustration? What what do we think is wrong with this system? You know, it was really that we don't have anybody who's accountable to us. We don't have anybody who's asking our opinion and how we want things to look. And we don't feel like we actually have representation that's representative. So to write our language, we held 33 town halls in 33 days where we went and asked the people of Michigan what they wanted. Um, the first half was kind of an overview of what's happening in Michigan, you know, what's happened in other states and then a really long detailed survey on if you don't want politicians drawing their own lines, who do you want drawing the lines and how do you want them to draw those lines? What criteria should we think about or what's really important to us for representative representative democracy? Um, and we we finalized that with thousands of people having input. What was really cool is, you know, we wanted to create a space where you didn't have to be a lawyer in order to come talk about the concepts and things that would be impacting you from a constitutional language perspective. So we had, you know, birthing doulas and uh, retired mailmen and and lots of lawyers, but, you know, stay-at-home parents all sitting around tables across our state thinking about, like, what do we want and what's going to be good not only for, you know, the next set of maps, but for decades to come in Michigan, since this is only done once every 10 years. We finalized that language. Um, then we uh, presented it to the Board of Canvassers in our state, which is just a group that approves your petition. And then we had to gather signatures. And in Michigan, you have to gather 315,654 registered Michigan voter signatures in 180 days. Um, that timeline had recently in 2016 been reduced. So it's it's getting harder and harder to um actually qualify for the ballot in Michigan through the ballot initiative process. And what ended up happening is we had just under 4,000 volunteers from like the entire geography of our state start gathering those signatures. And we ended up gathering 425,000 plus signatures in 110 days from all 83 of Michigan's counties, which isn't a requirement to get on the ballot. But we were really proud of that because since we have so many uh, petitions that are only gathered by paid uh, signature collectors, um, often they're only from the high population areas. But we really went out and saw that, like, no matter where you live in our state, you want change and reform. Um, and we will now be on the November 6th, uh, 2018 ballot, which is just so exciting to see how thousands of people have come together um, so that even if Michiganders don't vote for it, it will always be on record that we were trying as hard as we could right now to make sure that we had had an option for how to do this. OK, one, I think they're going to vote for it. And Me too. I, I certainly hope so. <laughs> Two. Uh, a couple of things you said that I want to highlight. One, you had, uh, you have what, 4,000 day-to-day volunteers. Is that right? Well, so yeah, we had uh, 3,873, I think, uh, people who got ink on paper, we call it, uh, who gathered signatures themselves. And most of these folks had not really been involved in campaigns before, right? They were like you. 
Yeah. And so many of you heard the like, I'm such an introvert. I never thought I would do this. Da, da, da. But they had been through the entire process. They had given feedback on what should be the language. They had helped design like our posters and they had cut clipboards and, and printed off maps. And I hold, think hold everybody I you, just. Because I know that story. Tell people about the cut clipboards part because that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. So part of, you know. My biggest thing is like just hearing when people were first starting all these people who were like, I just don't know if I should be participating like because I haven't done it before. It kind of broke my heart because I was like, democracy is about everybody participating and having a voice. You don't need any kind of special qualification besides, you know, being able to vote, I guess, um, and making sure that you're registered. And so um, during that inventory that we were doing, I had uh, a woman named Rebecca who was like, yeah, I'm just not sure if I should be involved. And I gave her a call and I was like, well, you know, do you have any skills? Like what, what, what's something that you really enjoy doing um, that maybe we could apply to the campaign? And she's like, well, I'm a wood carver. And I was like, oh, okay, we can think about that. And I was trying to think on my feet about like, okay, what are we going to do with a wood carver? And we tried making giant districts out of wood, but our districts are so gerrymandered that none of them would stand up. Um, And then we ended up trying to create districts out of Legos and coloring sheets. And a couple months later, we were looking at clipboards. And because we weren't an organization that had existed before, we wanted to use our signature gathering opportunity to also gather email and phone numbers from people so we could keep them informed on when we got our ballot proposal number and all that. But that meant that we needed like an extra large clipboard. And when we looked up how much those would cost. It was like seven or eight dollars a piece. And being an organization that started from Facebook, when we started, we did not have a bank account. <laughs> um, so every penny and dollar was being raised as we went. And we did not have money to afford clipboards, but wanted to make sure everybody could participate. So we thought about Rebecca and we were like, hey, can we create and cut our own clipboards? Um, and and the answer was yes. Uh, we ended up having people like donate um, different wood from, you know, they would reserve it at Home Depot and like uh, somebody could had a warehouse that we could go in after hours and like a big group of people who only knew each other online met up in this warehouse to cut thousands of clipboards. I think we cut 6,000 clipboards um, so that everybody could have one. And instead of it costing seven or eight dollars a piece, it ended up costing under 10 cents each. And then they became this like a really great tool because people wanted to customize them. And we put red tape on the outside of them so you could know that we were voters, not politicians, volunteer. And everybody put their maps on the back. And it was like a point of pride that we could find this like innovative solution just so that we could look. We wanted to make sure we were still being, you know, professional as we could. And, and so that people could understand that we really were serious about trying to make this change. And, and then we were able to also make it so that any volunteer, no matter where you are, in the state could have, you know, something from the campaign, letting them know that it mattered that they were showing up and, and we were really happy for them to be there. And and so when people, in a lot of these cases, when people are, are telling people about the petition and asking them to sign it, they literally have a visual aid because either the clipboard or the map on the back is in the shape of a crazy district, right? Yeah, yeah, that was really key. So we um, and the cool thing about having volunteers from all over the state is they knew what their local districts were and they knew which ones didn't make sense. Because, you know, sometimes you have a funny shaped looking district, but it makes sense based on like how city lines are uh, designed or where the boundaries are. Um, But they would know, you know, what the most egregious example, like, you know, why this community and this community wouldn't be together yet. These two are. So it ended up resonating with lots of people. And the really cool thing was that, you know, no matter what side of the political aisle you are on, I think a lot of people see that politicians right now have a lot of incentive to play games and not really a lot of incentive to listen to people. And so um, and they did feel frustrated or if especially if they were a voter who had voted over a couple decades. I mean, you would hear all these stories about, oh, yeah, I remember I really liked my representative. And then they got, you know, gerrymandered out of the district and we got somebody else or, oh, I hate you know, this representative, even though they're the party I vote for, but we can't get them out of office because they help draw their own lines. And the other thing I want to highlight here is that we're talking all about these volunteers. Are you are you still the only at this point actually paid staffer of voters, not politicians? 
So I, um, up until like two weeks ago was, um, what's really exciting is now that we're becoming a a statewide large campaign. We were just able to hire on a, a finance director and an operations manager. But yeah, for over a year and a half, we didn't have any paid staff. Um, including you. Including me, yeah. But I was working a full-time job on top of that in the recycling industry and also trying to get my MBA. And, you know, what's unfortunate is at a certain point, you need somebody who can answer the phones during the day um, <laughs> and and who can get back to like media. And and that makes a lot of sense, but it's just one of those other barriers, whereas like a citizen-led ballot initiative, there really are um, obstacles to making sure that you can be as successful as you can be when when you're all volunteer. And, and the thing about that, that I'm not sure that people listening necessarily realize, I mean, so we have an initiative petition process in Missouri and as the secretary of state, I, I presided over it. And, and the amount of signatures you have to get, the amount of work you have to put in, the way these generally work is it is extremely rare that people are able to get on the ballot, let alone do it you know, with signatures in every county, let alone with substantially more signatures than the law required without having serious backing from a special interest that funds it and has people out being paid to collect signatures. You all have done this entirely with, with volunteers. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what, what became really apparent to me. Um, Cause we even had, you know, some volunteers who had tried doing different things, but it, it became pretty clear that the current political process, um, if you even if you are trying to volunteer with it, we're not very good at like actually letting people take ownership over their involvement in democracy. And what I mean by that is like we were a campaign that started with nothing. So anything somebody, any skills somebody was bringing that they wanted to try and apply to the campaign was better than nothing. Um, so I think it allowed us to really be innovative and allowed people to take the skills that they are comfortable with and figure out a way to engage in this concept that they kind of had been locked out of, of actually actively participating in democracy beyond just voting. And I think there was just like a really strong resonance of people understanding that like nobody is coming to save us. Like, if we want to save our democracy, we're going to cut our clipboard and show up and make sure that it happens. Um, and, and that's something I've tried to keep at the focus uh, of our campaign from, from day one. Okay, so let's talk about, like, if, if you're collecting uh, or you're done collecting petitions, let's say you're, you're out, you're canvassing, you're trying to get people to vote for this, and they say, okay, but what are you changing the system to? What's the answer to that? Yeah, so we're going to have an independent commission of citizens who look like you and me from across the state come and draw these lines. It'll be comprised of four Democrats, four Republicans, and five independent or third-party voters who will hold meetings across the state to listen to communities and what's important to them in creating these lines. Um, and everything that this commission does has to be done out in the open, even down to the computer algorithms that'll be used to draw the maps. All of that you can see, you can get have feedback on, and they will have to comment back to you. And the biggest critical change is we directly put in the constitutional language that no partisan advantage can be given to a political party or a individual politician when these lines are drawn. So if the commission even tries to do that, it will be deemed unconstitutional and they will have to draw those maps again, unlike the status quo where there's really no accountability. Yeah, meaning in part, they can't draw districts based on where the current person's house is. (laughs) Right, exactly. Whether you care about clean water in our state or our roads not being the worst in the country or, um, you know, our school system starting to improve, no matter what your issue is, Redistricting is one of those like first key critical steps that we have to get right if we're ever going to start addressing these and especially if we're going to keep addressing them so that our politicians are actually more accountable to their voters. And when voters go and vote, uh, politicians are actually afraid of being unelected because right now in Michigan, about 80 percent of those state level elections are completely non-competitive after the primaries. Um, which just means there's not a lot of incentive to be afraid of your voters uh, voting you out of office. Well, and so, more specifically, yeah, so we're, we're really focused on that and, and fundraising and all that good stuff. But more specifically, when you say not afraid of your voters, it's really just not afraid at all of the voters in the general election. Right. And right. Which, exactly. Which That's a really just, key point. Yeah. Just draw. And, you know, it's not to say that it makes people. Uh, that, it, that it keeps people from being moderate. It just means it keeps people 
because, you know, you could be very progressive, very conservative, but still want to work to get things done. And, and what it does when it says the general election doesn't matter, you have to win your primary period. It just means whatever you do, don't have like a polite conversation with a colleague on the other side of the aisle because that could get you kicked out of office in your primary. Exactly. And that's what we see across Michigan. And what's really unfortunate about that is Michigan for decades has voted almost 50 percent for Democrats and 50 percent for Republicans. So if you thought about if our representation actually reflected how we vote, we would have our politicians talking across the aisle on everything, which just seems like such a surreal reality (laughs) because they would have to compromise in order to make anything happen or move forward. For people who are listening to this and they either want to start a movement in their state to end gerrymandering or uh, maybe they want to get into your old business and make sure that recycling works better in their state, whatever the movement is that they want to start, what are some of the biggest organizing challenges that you encountered and therefore the biggest lessons that you've learned or, or maybe what you would have done differently looking back? Yeah, so I think go into whatever your passion is without a solution. And that might sound a little like backwards or crazy, but but I think what I mean by that is just be open to listening and to exploring what other states have done. Because maybe what you think is the the best solution, maybe once you start doing research or start talking to other people, that's not really what's going to be how it's going to work. And I think when you do that, when you're open to listening and inviting people to the table, even if you're like, oh man, I I wouldn't want a Republican or a Democrat invited here because like I personally am not one and I don't want to listen to them. The really beautiful thing is when you do open that up and you just try and have an honest dialogue, a lot of people want the same things. (laughs) A lot of people think that like common sense, like fairness and impartiality and transparency are super important. And I think you'll be really surprised by the allies that you can have when you're just trying to come about finding a solution for everybody. The fact that you brought people in to tell you what they wanted, I have to imagine that that also helped incentivize people to then want to go volunteer for the solution that you all came up with together as a group. Yeah. And like one of my favorite parts is like, so let's say we do end up ending, amending the Constitution, which I really think we will. Like we can legitimately say that thousands of Michiganders came together to amend our Constitution and have fingerprints on that. And like that's kind of that's kind of awesome. Like we have a lot of like moms and dads and, and you know, uh, first time voters who like will have changed how elections happen in Michigan for decades to come. And I just think that's a much bigger victory if it's thousands of us than just like, you know, 12 people that were hanging out in a room thinking they were, knew all the answers. Seventy-five percent of us don't refresh our bristles every three months. Do you have any idea what we're talking about right now? Bristle refreshing. I'm talking about Quip, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Let alone visit the dentist every six months. That's why you need Quip to put a necessary yet annoying aspect of your personal care on autopilot. So, what makes Quip so different? For starters, Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes, while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. Next, Quip subscription plans are for your health, not just convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. I feel like the shipping alone is just $5. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and then get this, unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel wherever you take your teeth. And finally, everyone loves Quip. They were on Oprah's O-List, named one of Time's Best Inventions, and is the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Plus, they're backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists, and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every single day. Basically, there's an army of grassroots (laughs) dental people out there just trying to get you to use Quip. In my mind, they're just like walking down the street, just chanting, Quip, Quip, And they have signs. (laughs) So you get your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash majority54, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash majority54. So you've heard the show before. Uh, The second segment with you, we're going to do it a little bit differently because the funny thing about... Uh, gerrymandering is that 
as you know, very few people will actually come out and be against it publicly. Uh, <laughs> you know, usually what we do is we, we play some clips like Paul Ryan or somebody on Fox News saying some stuff that you hear it and you're like, ah, that drives me crazy. And then the audience gets to listen to me and the guest kind of roll through how to respond to that. But gerrymandering is different. With gerrymandering, it's something that they do in silence to, uh, mm-hmm. to you know, rig the system. They're not out there on Fox News talking about why gerrymandering is great. Although, funny uh, exception to that, I guess, is in the recent redistricting case at the Supreme Court, when the uh, lawyer for the state government was asked, what is redeemable about this? His answer was, well, you, you know who will be elected. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which I thought was funny. Uh, But that's also why they don't make this argument publicly. They know it's a loser of an argument. So they just do this behind the scenes. So instead of having clips to play, we're going to roll through some of what I think are the things that people say person to person when they try and defend the system. They won't say it in a microphone, but they'll try and defend their own actions. And then if I leave any out, you tell me, okay? All right. Sounds good. All right. So the first one that I hear from people like behind closed doors is they'll say, look, this is how the founders set things up. They sort of wash their hands of it and say, it's not my fault. This is just how the system is designed. What what would you say to that? Yeah. Um, so particularly in Michigan, we've actually tried to change how we do redistricting several different times. Um, so that's not true. Like we we have been innovating how how this goes. And the second part is The amount of data that was collected on individual voters back in the day uh, was a lot more minimal than it is now, where you have uh, so much information on every single voter so that you can like carve up districts house by house. There's a one district or three districts, house districts in Michigan on one street, three different (laughs) house districts. So it goes the Michigan State House 75, 73rd and then 76th. And so you think about those citizens even being able to go and advocate for like, I don't know, their sidewalk being cracked or their you know school district, and they have to figure out who they're each going to talk to. So um, it, it's just gotten brought to an entirely different level uh, with, with computers and the amount of data. Not only has the technology changed, but in addition to that, it's just not true to say that this is how the system was designed. Because... In order for that to be the case, you have to assume that, for instance, the existence of of primaries is in the Constitution. And (laughs) and it's not. not. People forget that primaries were a reform. It was, you know, during the progressive movement uh, almost 100 years ago now, people said, look, these uh, people are being nominated for office in these smoky back rooms and whoever's nominated wins. Boss Tweed famously said, I don't care who does the electing as long as I get to do the nominating. And, and so people said, well, we need to bring people into this process. So they, they created the idea of primaries. And what has usually happened in this country is that about every 50 years or so, we have done a full reboot of our democracy. Like we've looked at the system and said, okay, what's working, what's not? And the reason we've had to do that is because by the very nature of it, politicians figure out how to solidify their power. They take the system as it exists and they monkey with it until they have more and more power over who actually gets elected. And then the people have to come in and do something like create that system of primaries to shake that up. And over time with gerrymandering, what's happened is, is that the politicians have figured out how to make primaries into something that's not a reform, but something that actually protects their incumbency. And so what that means is we're like 50 years overdue for a full democracy reboot, whether it's gerrymandering, whether it's ranked choice voting or jungle primaries or or whether it's, uh, you know, anything that makes the general election matter again, campaign finance reform. So the idea that this is something that we're just stuck with and it's been around forever is is ridiculous. We we update this all the time. We're just overdue. Yeah, that's a great point. All right. OK. The second thing I came up with that people might say is they say, well, look, this like, for instance, voters, not politicians or any other reform movement. They like to dismiss it and say this is backed by special interests like unions and trial lawyers. Tell me how you respond to that. <laughs> so, first of all, <laughs> um, it's okay if if there's different groups of people who want to you know represent themselves. But but for us, it really isn't. We started from a Facebook group and had a very, um, especially in the beginning when we were writing the policy, a very strict rule on not wanting those special interests. Anybody from those groups, if they wanted to come talk as individuals could. But but the reality is, and if you even look at our campaign finance statements, I mean, 
We've had over 10,000 individual donations, which is over 14 times more than any other individual ballot committee in our state. Um, If you look at a reverse graph of how much money we've raised, we've raised about a million dollars and there's some that have raised like seven million with like four people who've donated. But um, we really are just a lot of of people. Um, You can show up to a meeting, you can participate, you can volunteer if you don't trust that. Uh, And and I think the other probably more important part is with this solution, um, ultimately the voters get to decide if it passes or not. Uh, our legislator isn't, legislators aren't going to vote on this. This will be on the ballot for people to vote. And if we get 51% of the people who show up on November 6th to vote yes, then it goes in the Constitution because the people wanted it, not because anybody could buy out the election or anything like that. You know, in California— when they did something similar, you know, they, they had the least competitive uh, congressional districts in, in the country. Today, they have the most competitive and, and they did a, a citizens redistricting commission. And when they did it, it was opposed by the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. They, they got together and they're like, we don't like this. And it passed and it, it was similar and then it was citizens did it. And I feel like when you're talking about true reform of the system, Maybe the best indicator of whether it is a good reform or at least a real reform is if both parties hate it, perhaps you've nailed it. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. I, think th- I think that really is true. The other really cool part about California, just because you brought it up, is they got a lot of new people into politics because the incumbents could never not uh, couldn't continue to protect their own district. So even if the party that won didn't change, you saw younger people, you saw more diversity being able to be elected for the first time in those seats. Yeah, right on. Um, argument number three. Uh, the people speak through their legislators. They don't speak through independent panels. These independent panels, you know, disenfranchise the voice of, of actual voters. Oh, <laughs> so <laughs> opposite of one. the truth. <laughs> um, yeah. So currently the only people who benefit from the redistricting process are our politicians looking to win the next election and the special interests that are looking out for the party and who are going to help pay for those primary races. Um Public input is not brought into account. Uh, I think that's evident from when we asked people's opinions. We had thousands of people show up because they were so desperate to be heard. And we actually make it the law that this commission will have to give ample notice to go out into the community and they have to respond to public comment and they have to to listen to people for the first time, let alone that these people will be regular voters like regular voters who will be onto this commission that are there to represent um, people uh, compared to the the status quo. One of the lessons that I wrote about in my book uh, that's coming out, that's coming out. Uh, one of the lessons that I wrote about is um, that you know politics can be really absurd, and you have to navigate it and defeat the absurd parts. And and one of the stories I tell is I talk about what I call the party of green dots. And you mentioned a few minutes ago how advanced the technology has become. When they were doing redistricting uh, in Missouri after the 2010 census, and I was in the state legislature, there was supposedly uh, a process by which legislators weren't involved, but like Michigan, they were. And so people would come to you, come to me, and they would they would give you sort of like an update on here's here's what your district looks like. And they would literally refer to it as the candor district, which always drove me crazy because we have term limits. If I had wanted to serve all that the term limit would allow, I could have done eight years in the legislature, but the district they were drawing would last 10. So the idea that it belonged to me and not people who lived in it, I thought was pretty crazy. But on top of that, the mapping technology they used would have these green dots and the green dots indicated where the legislator who represented that district lived, like literally where the house was. And so they would draw these crazy squiggly lines to um, accommodate where you lived. And a lot of people don't realize like some of the craziest lines that are drawn are, are drawn because there's huge premium is placed on the idea that two people from the same party should never have the awkward social experience of being drawn into the same district together if they currently serve together. Like as if what we're trying to preserve is <laughs> politicians because they're somehow our country's most valuable natural resource. Um, and so I would refer to this as the party of green dots. And I would say what happens is people run on reform and then they get elected 
And then they're so inspired by the fairness of the system that produced their victory. The people have spoken. Clearly, the system got it right. I won. Uh, and they would not switch from Republican to Democrat or Democrat to Republican. They would switch parties to become a member of the party of green dots. And then everybody in that party is a victor and they all have the same uh, interest. And and that's really what this is about is defeating the party of green dots. That's so true. Um, there's a really funny story. I wish I remembered his name, but in Michigan, they got, there was uh, two politicians that were running, but they had the exact same name. And during the redistricting process, they actually grabbed the guy's cousin instead of his house. <laughs> so he ended up still being able to win, even though the party was trying to throw him out because they got his cousin's house instead, which just. <laughs> That's really funny. All right. Last one. Uh, politicians will always find a way to manipulate the system. So it doesn't really matter whether you change it because they'll figure out how to mess with this. Yeah. So it cannot get more corrupt than it currently is. You have the people who are about to run in a race, draw the lines and pick the voters that they want to represent when running for the race. They are literally changing the rules of the game right before they play the game. Um, and it's done completely behind closed doors with like no input from uh, people with changing things at the last minute. You don't know how much money is spent on lobbyists or whoever is helping draw the maps. Um, and 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 then you get a result that where people can vote 50-50, yet one party somehow has 70 percent of the representation with the elected seats. So no matter what you think, I mean— Having the people with the worst conflict of interest in charge of and being the only ones who control the current process isn't working and it can't get worse. Um, and on the opposite end of that, there's actually a lot of studies out there that show even just bringing um, different political processes out to out in the open for transparency, but also just giving it to people who aren't politicians, giving it to regular folks helps improve uh uh, how hard they work and how much they even want to follow the law um, because they aren't used to those gray areas uh, in the law. And so they really want to go and do the right thing. The other thing is like we trust like juries and, and other kinds of commissions every single day with like life and death and like really complicated business decisions. Um, and, and it's part of like our justice system. I think a lot of people uh, understand that that, that, um, it's kind of a vital part of being able to have like a, a group of your peers. And so, you know, it's not any kind of new concept to try and try and move things that direction and, and trust people again. And the other thing I say when people do this, because I experienced the same sort of argument when I was in Jefferson City uh, and in state government and people were upset that I was trying to reform campaign finance and, and some similar aspects to what you're doing, but not on the same scale by any means. Uh, but just, I was in the legislature. So I was trying to make the same kind of change, but through the legislature. And what people would say to me is they'd say, yeah, but no matter what you do, politicians will find a way to make it work for them. And what I always told people is, yeah, we're going to have to do it again. Like, <laughs> that's okay. I mean, that's the way this works. It's like dealing with political corruption is no different than dealing with organized crime. Like the FBI doesn't put away one mob boss and say, well, that's over. We'll never have to do that again. <laughs> you you have to stay out in front of it and you have to be eternally vigilant. So, you know, you uh, and your band of amazing people are going to overthrow peacefully the government of Michigan. And I have no idea, you have no idea how it is that in 20 years, politicians are going to try to do an end around around the system that you designed. We know they're going to try. And once we figure out what it is they're going to do, then either Katie Faye and the same people are going to have to do it again, or the next generation of people are going to have to do it again, because that's how democracy works. Like it's in, in the army, we used to say the thing about your fighting position is it was never finished. And it's the same thing with democracy. Like you're always trying to make it work for people. And you're always having to work against politicians to do that. So yeah, it ain't permanent. Have to do it again. That's okay. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and so true. I mean, I think that's what I hope at, after this ballot initiative that uh, so many people who have been empowered stay involved because I think so many of us understand how important it is. Well, I'm really glad that you're doing this work. I remember when, when I was up there, you know, we, we did a little event at a university and then you and I were in the car for a while and we were driving to, I think it was a, a fundraiser at somebody's house uh, for voters, not politicians. And, and uh, 
while we're in the car, you're telling me all about it. And I'm asking all these questions to kind of try and poke holes in it, figure out. Because I'm sitting there going, gosh, there's no way that she's taken this arcane issue, made it sexy, <laughs> gotten people excited, really has this many volunteers. It was like, this seems too good to be true. So by the time we got to the place where I was like, you know, headlining or whatever, this fundraiser for you, and I got up to talk, it's the only time in a year and a half that I can remember saying, I am speechless. I'm just here to tell you all that you're amazing and thank you for what you're doing. And then I, I just stammered for a few minutes because it, it's so incredibly impressive. So thanks for coming on here and talking about it. And thanks for everything you're doing. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for the the highlight and for helping be another example of, of how we can all get involved because that's what's going to matter. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Katie. Good talking to you. A huge team candor. Thank you to Katie Fahey for having an uplifting conversation with us about the future of the Republic and just how exciting it is to have this many people involved. It's amazing how many stories one after the other we hear of ordinary people making a post on social media and starting a movement. And I just can't help but feeling, Jason, that there are people listening to this very podcast right now who are about to embark on such a movement. They just have yet to write their Facebook post. And and we could cover them in season three of Majority 54. So write your Facebook post <laughs> and then email us and, and call your shot. Let us know that that's what's going to happen. Uh, thank you for listening to Majority 54. If you liked this episode, you should go back and check out the voting rights conversation that I had with Desmond Mead last season. It gets more in the weeds on voting rights, which is a whole other part of our democracy that needs saving. And it'll educate you on another citizen-led initiative that's going on right now in Florida. For updates on the show and what Jason has going on, follow him on Twitter at Jason Kander. You can follow the entire movement that Katie has started at Not Politicians. And if you'd rather email the show, uh, the address is hellomajority54 at gmail.com. And I know people have asked, but I don't share my Twitter handle because I don't think you guys want to hear about business information or self-improvement help. So I think they might. No, no, it's all right. All right. Well, I'm Jason Kander, along with at Diana Kander. Uh, thanks for listening to Majority 54. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.